The members of the Uncontrolled Airspace Podcast are participating as private individuals. Their comments do not necessarily reflect the views of the various organizations they work with. Also, anything you hear on this podcast that sounds like advice on aircraft operation is obviously very general. You should always consider your own situation, remember your training, and fly the airplane. But you knew that. Oh, and real pilots fly Cessnas. Just push the record button. Yeah, okay. Um... So the uh, so the Sanford I went up to Sanford for the uh, ski plane fly-in uh, yeah. on Saturday. Yeah. Now, Becca. unfortunately, um, wait. You know, a day at the airport is like sex, right? It's like I, I'm sure. too infrequent, and you never get enough. No, no. Well, yeah, something like that. I'm sure I've used this joke on the podcast before. No, a day at the airport is like sex because when uh, it's good, it's great, and when it's bad, it's still pretty good. Uh, and uh, so there you go. Yeah, I, I got to uh, spend Saturday morning uh, up at Sanford Airport. It was a beautiful day. I mean, the sun was shining, the sky was blue. Um, it was also kind of relatively cold to begin with, and the wind was howling. All right, I mean, it was mm. the wind chill. It was really cold, and it was a little dicey. For I guess apparently the ski plane folks didn't feel real comfortable, so there were like two ski planes there, um, and uh, but but mostly we just kind of all got together and had pancakes. I have to tell you, um, I've been to a fair number of pancake <laughs> breakfasts in my time. Okay, um, it's an as you know an occupational hazard if you're in the aviation uh, world. That's right? true. Um, and uh, the pancake breakfast, the, the quality of the food that they put out there. Uh, really. Um, on Saturday morning was the best I have ever had at a panca- at an airport pancake breakfast. It mm. was excellent. Um, helps that it was catered by a real restaurant. The well, uh, the uh, the on field the uh, what do they call it? The cockpit cafe, I believe, is the name of the restaurant there. And uh, and they actually catered the whole thing, so it was just really great. I mean, they had scrambled eggs and pancakes and sausage and bacon and coffee and juice and I mean it was just and for six dollars, can't wow. beat that. Yeah, it sounds that. like Ponca City. Yeah, so. Uh, so it was Man. excellent. It was an and and I met some really interesting people. One person I I met that I'm going to try and get her to come onto the podcast. A very very interesting woman who was in the business of airport business strategy and uh, business planning and. Uh, Help. Isn't that an oxymoron? Well, you know, uh, apparently she's trying to make it not so much, uh, and she's Good. very, very knowledgeable uh, about, uh, as you guys are, but she's very, very knowledgeable about the whole, uh, uh, how the, uh, the uh, I'm sorry, we're not supposed to call it a bailout plan, a uh, stimulus plan. Stimulus plan. The stimulus plan uh, is going to play into the aviation world, and uh, she's got her oh, yeah. finger on the pulse of that whole thing, apparently. I don't know if she's actually what is testified, her, but her name? her name is uh, Dale uh, and she works huh. with uh, some place here. I've got her business card. Here it is, right Triple here. Triple A E. No, uh, no. She's with an outfit called that are located in Portsmouth, New Hampshire. Uh, they, it's uh, Business Development Management Aviation Services Group, and uh, she's apparently all over the place. Uh, she apparently, I was trying today to go, and there were hearings at the State House in New Hampshire. Uh, regarding airport funding uh, that she was at, and I, I, I wanted to describe the business again for me. Uh, the way she described it to me is that she's a, a business planning for airports or business strategy for airports. So apparently, she, uh, uh, among others, consults with the uh, the Sanford Airport airport folks in trying to make their business better. Um, 
and then she's also, you know, kind of got her finger on the pulse of all this, uh, you know, aviation legislation and trying to keep airports funded and trying to make sure some of the bailout money comes. Excuse me, some of the stimulus Yeah, that'd money. be kind of fart and parcel with that gig. You, you, know, you, you need uh, to know, oh, yeah. you know, you're yeah, subscribing you, to Aviation <laughs> Daily. And. So a fascinating person, uh, and uh, I, I, we talked a little bit about her coming on the podcast, and we're going to try and work that out. Um, so it was a good day. I also met a gentleman who was a uh, uh, part-time CFI there at Sanford who is a Continental pilot, which is, of course, of course a... Uh, you know, serendipitous thing, um, and we were talking a little bit about. Uh, he he had no inside information about the uh, the Buffalo crash, but he did. We did talk a little about that. I'll maybe I'll share some of that. When what is he? Uh, what is he a pilot of? Seven fifty sevens, apparently. And, yeah, he wouldn't know about the Q four hundred. Well, apparently, he used to fly them though, so he knows a little. Oh, okay. he knows a little well, that's bit. different. He knows a little bit. I was going to say, if he's been there and done that, and it, it, it's. Uh, you know, when airplanes like the, the Dash 8 and the ATR-42 uh, and the uh, Embraer uh, EMB-120, the Brasilia, when they hit the market, turboprops in the 30 to 50 seat range were all the rage for feeder markets. Oh, yeah. So we'll talk about that in a few oh, minutes. Yeah. So I met him, and that was interesting. And uh, and I met a, a handful of my old uh, EAA Chapter 15 friends from down oh, Northampton cool. Field uh, who had come up for the pancakes. Apparently, the word had gotten out about the uh, the quality of the food. Well, you know, it's a it's a good thing you got out. We wouldn't have anything to talk about. Yeah. So I had a good yeah. old time on Saturday morning, uh, and uh, and got to go out. And the, and uh, one of the airplanes, uh, I got to, actually went out. I mean, this was like uh, above and beyond the Call of Duty, if you ask me, because it was like wicked cold. But we went out and stood <laughs> on the on the edge of the uh, of the uh, what is normally a grass strip uh, that they had turned into the snow strip, and uh, watched and got a chance to look up close at one of these ski planes, uh, which is a super cub with skis. That's all. And uh, and then watched him fire it up and uh, do a takeoff, and then he went around and did a flyby, and I captured that on my little video camera and posted it on YouTube, and that's the link I gave you guys, and we'll put it in the show. Oh, oh this is about Jack Hodgson production. Yeah. yeah, so I mean, there's nothing to it. It's just just some video I captured and uh, and I threw up on the net just to. It's kind of a cool flyby he did, and the wind was howling so much that I mean, the, he was pretty low for this flyby, and the ground speed was very low as a result of the wind. <laughs> So, I love it when you can trot alongside him. Yeah, almost. Yeah, almost. I'll tell you. <laughs> so, uh, so it was a fun day, even though we didn't get an awful lot of ski planes. Um, and uh, and that was cool. That was cool. It is if you, cool, if yeah. you want to stop traffic, yeah, uh, if, go out in a little airplane like that where you can slow down, and uh, fly backwards. Where you can slow, yeah, where there's so much wind and you've got such a nice slow envelope that you can kind of park it in a spot. And watch traffic stop. <laughs> you're, just, you're just a mean-spirited man, Higdon. I don't know. It's just like just evil, 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 evil. Hey, well, welcome, folks, to episode uh, 122 of Uncontrolled Airspace, the General Aviation Podcast. Uh, we are recording this episode on, uh, when, what is it, Wednesday evening, February Wednesday 18th, evening, February 8th. February 18th. 18th. February 18th, 2008. 18th, right. You're 10 days behind us, man. Let me say hi to my friends here in the hangar. One of those voices is Jeb Burnside, who's talking to us from Sarasota, Florida. Hi, Jeb. How you doing? I'm spiffy. Uh, the weather's good. It's a little breezy down here today, but um, uh, not a cloud in the sky. Yeah, and the internet's um, cooperating, knock on wood. Yeah, I got my uh, got my magazine issue in the can last week, so uh, all the pressure's off for the next few days. Um, getting geared up for uh, um, 
some fun here over the next couple of weeks, yeah. uh, personal and professional. So yeah. uh, just, uh, just uh, you know, enjoying life. So how's life on yeah. the, uh, the, uh, the residential airport shaping up? Yeah. Life on the residential I was, I was. You're talking about going out to the airport, hanging around the airport, being like sex. I, I didn't want to say anything. <laughs> That's right. That's, That's right. You're having sex in public. The metaphor, That's right. The metaphor is a little bit odd in that case. Okay, go ahead. Yeah. No, no, I saw that's that's the only thing I wanted to say on that topic at this stage. <laughs> so, so what you're saying is your sex life is better than my sex life, right? Well, I'm take not, my word for it, pal. I'm, Let's not say I'm, an awful lot. So, I'm not well, put it this way, Jack. He doesn't have to go looking for it. <laughs> okay. All right. <laughs> Um, I, I, I'm sorry I even brought it up. Uh, <laughs> on that he wakes, note, <laughs> he wakes up with it every morning. On that note, I will say uh, also say hello to Dave Higdon, who's talking to us from Wichita, Kansas. Hi, David. How are you doing? Oh, it's fine. How's Just your sex fine. life? I mean, how's your uh, airport? Well, airport was good. Uh, spent a spent an hour hanging out at Dead Cow on uh, on uh, Saturday afternoon and uh, visiting with some folks and watching some little tailwheel action. Not much. Uh, hey, and I'm Jack Hodgson, and I'm talking to you from Dover, New Hampshire, where uh, we haven't actually talked about weather. It's the only thing notable. The weather is it's snowing again here tonight. Um, the snow snowfall started about an hour or so ago. We, Man, and it was in the 70s here yesterday. Yeah, I mean, we really had a false spring up here, too. We kind of kidded ourselves into thinking that the winter was over because we've had such nice weather for the past Oh, I'm really worrying about March because uh, we, we had a little bit of an ice storm here that was really devastating and massive south and to the east of us up the Ohio River Valley into Kentucky and, and uh, western Pennsylvania and, and southern Ohio, Indiana, and all through there. And we just got a, 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 a little glaze of it here that kind of put a wrench in things for a while. Uh, that's the last moisture we've had here. It has been in predominantly, you know, severe, clear, or scattered, widely scattered, or, you know, high, thin wisps of stuff going overhead, and just ridiculously above average. So how does this translate uh, into worrying about March? You're not stu- still doing IFR planning out of the old Farmer's Almanac, are you? <laughs> no, I'm doing it based on uh, 17 years of living here that uh, when we get off really light for great expanse of January and or February, that somewhere Mother Nature rebalances the scale. What's going on in the world here? Um, you know, one of the ideas that came out of my uh, lunch with, uh, with uh, Jeff uh, Scarfordjet Ward uh, was the idea of doing a, uh, a, a UCAP meetup uh, up here in the uh, sort of central New England, greater Boston, southern New Hampshire area. And so mm-hmm. we've posted this uh, in the forums, uh, inviting people to sort of express an interest and try and figure out exactly where we might do this. And I just wanted to uh, also announce it here on the podcast because I think we get a few more people listening to the podcast than we get in the forums. So if uh, I just wanted to, set, uh, to kind of s- spread the word. Uh, any uh, listeners uh, or aviation fans in general who are in the uh, sort of either greater Boston or southern New Hampshire area who would like to get together either some evening maybe for a beer or maybe Saturday morning for some coffee or something like that. Um, at this stage of the game, I'm just looking for people to sort of say I'm kind of generally interested and I'd prefer this particular geographical area. So either go into the forums and make a posting in the appropriate uh, thread or send an email to uh, podcast at uncontrolledairspace.com and we'll try and put together... We had such a good time out in San Francisco. It seems uh, just like a natural to do that here too. You guys ought to think about 
putting something together in your neighborhoods too. I'm sure you could. Well, actually, I was kind of thinking about coming up for that one. I could, could, can't quite make Oakland, but uh, yeah, okay. Uh, New, England would, New England wouldn't be all that hard. Well, there you go. We should do it. You should do it. I'll, I'll you keep should, you informed. And, and we'll do one down here. You should come down, Dave. You should think about coming. We we should, you know, really have well, a, a hangar flying session, you know, in my hangar. In your hangar. But, absolutely. Uh, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, not, not to get too far ahead of ourselves here, and, and I don't think we're going to do this in your hangar, but uh, one of the things I'd like to do at both Sun and Fun and Oshkosh this year, um, in addition to the episodes that we record, is to do sort of a little bit more organized uh, meetups there, too. Um, I know a lot of our listeners have gotten together on their own, and uh, um, but uh, we're going to try and do something like that too. Probably, you know, a couple times, maybe beginning. I don't know. We're working on the details there. But just expect uh, if you're going to be at Sun and Fun or uh, or Oshkosh that there may be opportunities to get together with other fellow listeners, um, as and, and probably us too. But uh, what the heck, the listeners are more fun than us. So uh, absolutely, yeah. So, anyways, what I'm calling the Central New England Meetup, uh, someplace Greater Boston, Southern New Hampshire. Send us an email. Let me know. For a while there, it looked like uh, Cirrus XM satellite radio, uh, which pr- which is the key link, the way that you get the weather into your uh, onboard GPSs. It looked like one of them. There, there, there are other. Are there, there others? But, right. But, All right. So uh, um, it looked like they were going to declare bankruptcy, and then who knows what was going to happen after that. But now apparently they've gotten some refinancing and uh, are going to live at least for a couple more days. Do you, Jeb or, or Dave, do you know anything more about what's going on here? Um, um, the, the company that uh, um, is apparently sinking some money into Sirius slash XM is called Liberty something or other. Uh, we don't have any links here on our, um, our cheat sheet. Um, the um, I think the idea is to um, maybe, you know, go a debtor in possession uh, kind of thing um, and um, uh, erase some debt and try to come out the other side of this as a uh, maybe a different company or certainly a going concern. They've got a lot of assets, mainly, you know, some satellites. Yeah, the satellites uh, got a, should be got a great valuable. subscriber base. Um, and uh, most of the time, they've got a really good product. You know, we, we talked, I think, about the uh, uh, the conniption, for lack of a better term, in early January that they um, they went through, where um, certain of their subscribers um, could not obtain their weather data for several days, and uh, this involved both Garmin and XM. Uh, and um, uh, some permutations of, of their software and configuration, and, and et cetera, et cetera, that uh, I don't think they've really ever come clean about. I, if I'm mistaken, please someone correct me. Um, but, um, you know, those kinds of hiccups notwithstanding, they've got a really good product. I, I've enjoyed their audio programming for a number of years. Their um, their weather data is, is excellent. I enjoy it also. Um they are not the only game in town. Uh, they're the only game working with the uh, the Garmin products right now. But well, WSI, that's, yeah, that's that's that, that's the issue here. Is that yeah, so many yeah, of these yeah, systems yeah. have been set up to be proprietary to one provider. When you right. buy that box, you're wedded to that provider, uh, which makes this a, a really big deal considering the penetration of XM weather. In the uh, you know portable, the handheld like your your Garmin uh, right. 
handheld or whether the panel mounted stuff, which you can get on your uh, four thir- or five thirty, I believe now, and uh, it's uh, it, the, uh, it kind, the, kind of the throws you into market, that. Yeah, the portable market is clearly the larger um, market for the XM Weather product. Um, the the installed market. Um, and, and let me hasten to say that the, uh, uh, at least um, as things stand now, the the uh, portable market is you know, I, let's just say impossible to convert to another uh, provider, um, as far as we know. The um, um, the installed base of panel mounted uh, units is perhaps less impossible, shall we say. Uh, to convert to another provider, namely something like WSI, for example. Uh-huh. Um, that said, it it wouldn't prevent, and you know, none of this prevents anybody from coming in the back door and using the existing XM infrastructure to deliver right. over that infrastructure a new product uh, to Garmin uh, portables or the well, installed that, that- uh, panel mount stuff. That that now, market there's a third, we're talking about there, I think, is the saving grace of this whole thing. Yeah, and that makes and that third, service and keeping those satellites alive valuable. Yeah. yeah, there's a third provider out there, and that's the FAA through ADSB and the and the Flight Information Service, yep. uh, FIS, that uh, provides uh, weather information on on compliant uh, airborne hardware. Um, the the um, the number of installed units for that, of course, is down to the noise level. However. I'm sorry, you said it's FAA or is it NOAA? FAA provides the data. They do, okay. Yeah. FAA provides the data, and then there were two delivery systems started with delivery of free baseline stuff mm-hmm. years ago. Echo Star was one of those, and I think Garmin wound up with that, uh-huh. and, uh, and uh, Honeywell. And Honeywell, Honeywell. Built, its, built its network based on uh, ground stations. And I've flown with a couple of people that have the box to get the Honeywell system, and of course they buy the full boat package. Right. They're not getting just the text uh, freeware stuff that uh, the FAA makes these frequency holders provide. And uh, it's right up there in its current incarnation with what you get from XM. Uh, Who, in addition- and in over most of the country, you you'll get coverage above about. Ten thousand feet. So, who, who yeah. in addition to Garmin, sells devices that are wedded to XM radio weather? Um, doesn't the um, the Allied King, Appendix King, um, uh, Avion, um, a, 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 um, an XM radio uh-huh. product? Well, my, my and the Aviator, Dave, Dave? the Aviator. Yeah, the, I'm sorry, the Aviator. Yeah, isn't it an XM yeah. weather product? Yeah, yeah, that's an XM um, weather product. Um, and that's an additional is, converter box, so uh, conceivably yeah. another converter box. The box or, yeah, yeah. Has I, my, I guess the question air, I'm getting air to gator is, is another one. You know, there's a lot of of uh, uh, I won't say you know roll your own solutions, but there's a lot of uh, solutions out there that use off the shelf hardware. Like the, like the Q, Samsung Q1 we've talked about, but with yeah. a GPS, a, an, an external GPS receiver, an external XM weather receiver, and um, you know talking to each other through USB or Bluetooth or something like that, there are a number of those products out there. I would guess probably at, around the same number as there are Garmin portables, maybe more. Yeah. 
have have well, has have Garmin or any of these other manufacturers said anything about what they would do if XM Weather went not away? Not to my knowledge. Not to my knowledge. I, I I suspect that right now, if you asked, they would say, "A, we're sitting this out. B, um, you know, we've produced a product that's compliant with the XM uh, standard." And we're optimistic that you know data will continue to be available over that standard. Well, that's the right answer, um, I guess. But that's the right answer. But but and they're not going to tell you anything else at this stage. Yeah, well, I was uh, just wondering if they had publicly no. made any any contingency plans. But yeah, keep not. in mind keep in mind that Garmin, um, well, that XM Weather is available not just for aviation uh, uses, but also for um, uh, um, in some of the Garmin um, terrestrial. Uh, boxes, their oh, highway, highway and survey and maritime. Uh huh, maritime especially, but highway users use that stuff a lot to you know yeah. plan routing if they're driving a lot. Um, so we're not the guys; we're not the only guys out there holding the bag. But I think it's instructive also that you don't hear Garmin um, or Fetter King less so. Uh, talked about as a potential savior of Sirius slash XM. Um, if I was I them, I wouldn't be talking about it right now. I, would, be- I, I wouldn't be either, but uh, um, yeah, I just think I just find it instructive yeah. you know, on several levels. Yeah. Well, it's interesting. Well, the big question is the big question is uh, you know how easy or complex, difficult would it be for XM to be the XM service. If I remember right, the XM service was is is fed through. Our, our WX Weather is a third party company that uses uh, the XM network for distribution, so they're both in it. Uh, the data translation product, I think, could be taken somewhere else. But why did if, I think if XM that was to go under? Those satellites are still up there. Somebody's going to come yeah, in and buy that capacity. And the you know the infrastructure to control the satellites is still there. And in fact, yeah. I think um, that there's also uh, some backup satellites already up and parked. Yeah. Uh, in case one of the existing satellites that XM uses on a daily basis goes down, um, WSI, of course, um, I, I didn't they used to use the Iridium network. Uh, yeah, well, gee, many Echo Star was the early one, and it was a re- yeah. a request reply system. It right. was not a steady downbeat of data. You right. had to send up a request, which went through a land link to the satellite uplink, and then it would eventually beam down the uh, the the picture that you asked for. Mm-hmm. And uh, Anyways, there were two flavors of two flavors of subscription, and one was like, oh, the cheap one was no more than twenty a month request replies, yeah. and then there was unlimited, and it was horribly inefficient. And when the network got busy, it could take way way too long for the answer yeah. to come back. Yeah, that was, that well, was a first generation system. We'll keep an eye on this yeah. thing. Hopefully, uh, hopefully, uh, XM Sirius can can figure out their problems and. Uh, and uh, have the product. I, the, the I would probably be holding off buying anything that was. Yeah, but that's yeah. Garmin. Yeah. All, the, all the popular Garmin uh, GPSs, right? Yeah. 
that's true, but you know they do other things also. But here's my worst fear, though: is is someone rescues Sirius and XM and continues the audio programming and does away with the weather program? Yeah, exactly. You know, so who knows what's going to happen? So, Anyways, yeah, more later, more later. So we uh, so continued. We've got this uh, this very sad uh, crash, uh, this Continental slash Colgan Air crash up in uh, near Buffalo, New York. All souls, all souls on board were lost, sadly, and uh, um, forty-nine in the airplane and one on the ground. Yeah. So, uh, so you know, at first it was kind of fun to speculate that it was icing, and there was a lot of uh, evidence mounting to uh, indicate that uh, that it may have been um, an icing incident that kind of caused them to lose control. But I saw a story. Was it just today? Have you guys looked at this? Um, they're, they're now yeah, the initial, the initial uh, output from the uh, flight data recorder indicates that this dramatic pitch up that the aircraft did was actually a commanded pitch up that uh, that the uh, pilot flying <laughs> pulled back on the yoke and added power all at the same time and well uh, but that's their preliminary look at it and it's got to factor into a lot of other stuff is that yet, true is that how it works I mean why why did NTSB even release it if it's not if it's that well, that's a. Well, let's come back to that. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Which, which, uh, um, I've got a few choice words, but uh, um, what you know, we're hearing here, and why we're hearing it is another matter. But what we're hearing is that um, uh, the airplane was in more or less stable flight uh, with ten degrees of flaps, um, approaching the outer marker to intercept the ILS and descend into the Buffalo Airport. Um, they, um, I'm picking up bits and pieces from various sources here. Um, I'm not relying on the NTSB all that much, but my understanding of the of the Dash Eight uh, model um, in, in uh, the crashed is that it's got an ice sensor on it, and you know the various switches and systems and everything like that for the DI system. Now, all of this, of course, presumes that a they were in ice. And of course, the, the the cockpit voice recorder has confirmed that, but uh, that they had activated the DI system and all this sort of thing. The way the system apparently works, and I'm you know I'm not a Dash Eight driver by any stretch. Um, it the um, uh, various uh, speeds that the computer uh, does things at basically increases by 20 knots. So their VREF speed is increased by 20 knots. More importantly, the stick shaker and stick pusher speeds. Uh, are increased also in icing conditions. And uh, as they slowed and descended uh, for the ILS, <clears throat> they had a notch of flaps out. They went to extend the landing gear and add another notch of flaps, extend the flaps to 15, and that's where things started to go funky. Um, what I've understood from, from media, popular media coverage here over the last day or so is at about the time um, they got that 15 degrees of flaps out, um, the stick pusher activated, which also simultaneously uh, tripped off the autopilot. Um, yep. the, the pilot flying's reaction was to add, uh, um, add power, perhaps full power, mm-hmm. and to pull the nose up. The uh, New York Times has a fairly interesting um, piece of uh, animation showing the plane's attitude. Uh, and and what happened at various points in the accident sequence, um, and when the power was applied and the nose pitched up, 
the airplane actually pitched up to 31 degrees nose high, which right. is way past any critical angle of attack or any uh, uh, any normal uh, attitude that these airplanes should be flying. Uh, and then departed controlled flight, um, went over on, on, I believe, the, the right wing, um, basically an incipient spin, and... Um, the crew was, you know, started to retract the gear, started to retract the flaps, um, and uh, were in the process of recovering um, the aircraft back to controlled flight when it hit the ground. Hit the ground, uh, basically in a level attitude, uh, yes. but with very little formal forward motion, mm-hmm. uh, which is to say, um, it was either in a spin or fully stalled. It had, it, and it had. Basically turned uh, and through this this uh, episode, basically turned 180 degrees from um, um, its previous heading. Um, how and why all that happened is the real question. Um, there was ice in the area. Of course, they don't know if um, uh, they don't know yet. Let's put it that way. Um, if if ice was a factor in precipitating this this departure from controlled flight. Um, it's it's conceivable that a combination of the icing system being activated and um, the increased stick pusher speeds, um, coupled with uh, the slow uh, speed as the airplane pre- as the crew prepared the airplane for the approach, uh, initial stick pusher sequence, and and the crew overreacted. Um, I I don't want to go any further than that. Yeah. One thing I learned, um, one interesting thing I learned over uh, pancakes, um and I'm not suggesting that this is a part of the cause, but I just found it interesting. So, uh these aircraft ha- do de-icing on the wings through these inflatable boots. Um, right, yeah, have boots. The thing that I found particularly interesting is that there is no de-icing on the tail. That's not correct. That's not true. Uh, this is what not on, the, on this airplane, that's not correct. Really? That's not okay. true. On the, on the 7.5, that may be correct. But I don't even think it's true on the 7.5. On, on early 7.27s, or maybe all 7.27s, um, I, I was listening, I started reading I, I, some emails from a gentleman who used to fly them uh, for an unnamed carrier. And um, he, he was writing that um, initially they had bleed air on the tail surfaces of the 727, but it would prove so troublesome, and there was no way, at least then, given the that the, the, the technology at the time, there was no good way to determine whether or not it was working, that they simply disabled the system and told the pilots not to fly on ice or to get through the ice very quickly. But you're and saying... That worked. You know, I'm not aware of any 727s that crashed from ice on the tail. Um, we're certainly willing to be educated on that point. But you're saying well, there's, that this there's... Buffalo aircraft did have de-icing on the tail. Yes, they had yeah. boots. Yeah. Had Dash 8. always on the tail yeah. and on Yeah. Yeah, I'm sorry. Yeah. You guys broke up there for a second. Hang on. Stop for a second. Um, they have de-ice on the horizontal tail, the vertical tail, or both? Yes. Both. both. Okay, thank yeah. you. Keep in mind that the Dash 8 is built by Bombardier, which is a Canadian company, and they tend to have longer and deeper winters than we do here in the U.S. Um, 
Bombardier aircraft, as a rule, are fairly robustly built and um, certainly um, uh, come out the door well, usually well equipped to deal with icing. Well, it bears bears pointing out here that the the Q four hundred, as they're calling it here, and you know, in so many of these reports, is fundamentally a De Havilland Dash Eight. Yeah, it was designed and manufactured by the De Havilland Aircraft Corp outside Toronto uh, when it was an independent company, and De Havilland Aircraft, by definition, are very robust in uh, challenging. Operating environments. Uh, you know, a lot of people are familiar with the old Twin Otter, uh, unpressurized twin turboprop, about 18, 19 seats. Uh, man, it's been flown on floats, it's on skis, they use it in, in Antarctica. Uh, still to this day, it's one of the best airplanes around there for that. Dash 7 was a 50 seat stole airliner that could get in four, and out of 1,800 feet. Four engines, that's right. But it could carry four people in and out of 1,500 feet. Back in the 70s and 80s, uh, Ransom Airlines used Dash 7s exclusively and had using uh, what was then revolutionary RNAV procedures, um, had um, uh, worked out stuff with ATC that they could fly from Philly to Washington National um, and all they really needed was a clearance to take off and, and follow the, the procedure. Uh, they could land and, and roll out at National Airport on one of the stub runways oh, using STOL that. procedures uh, without really interfering with any of the other air traffic in the area. It was, it was really an amazing operation. And they got um, even better at that with MLS came out. Exactly, exactly. Um, so the, the basic family of airplanes, as, as Dave correctly points out, having having uh, been given birth by de Havilland Canada, um, is a very sturdy uh, series. Uh, going back to the Beavers and, and Otters and then Twin Otters and, and things like that. Here we are with the Dash 8, um, the Dash 8 Q400 in this case. Um, so... It, it, and this was a fairly new airplane, too. Um, yeah. Um, well, the, the original Dash 8 first flew in about 1980, uh, I want to say 1984, when the first Dash 8 flew up and down to right. Ontario. Uh, and it was part of this new revolution of 30 to 35 seat airliners. And it used a revolutionary new engine, the PW100 series. That was just a big jump in power and weight and fuel efficiency over the PT-6. Uh, now, the Dash 7 used four humongous PT-6s. Uh, and uh, it was the first airplane cleared to fly in and out of London City Airport. And uh, it's, a, it's an, actually a converted marine dock. A pier in in the center city of London, right on the on the river, and the Dash Seven was the first airplane cleared to go in and out of there, and it did it with. I mean, I mean, it wasn't even it wasn't even hard work for it. Yeah, yeah. Hey, speaking, I'm sorry, Dave. Go ahead. Oh, that's. I was just going to say, I, I believe that this is the first accident a, a Dash Eight model has incurred with the. I think it fatalities. is. Unless there's something that's happened, you know, uh, in Europe or. Uh, uh, Africa or something that just didn't make the radar screen over here. Mm-hmm. Well, and uh, this, this, this piece that uh, that 
got linked in our, in our in our planning site. One of the things that makes me give it more points than I might normally is personally knowing uh, and knowing the reputation of the prime reporter on it, Lynn Lunsford, who's mm-hmm. been with the journal covering aviation for a god awful long time, and uh, uh, is not like what we like to make fun and, and disparage on certain news networks and certain print publications. So, right, right, right. Hey, speaking of icing, um, this is just, I mean, it's kind of, I put it on the list because it's also about icing, but it's un, not directly related to the Buffalo crash. But, um, t- you know, teach me something about, I guess this is part of my IFR lesson here. Um, yeah. About a, I guess it was a what, about a year ago or so, uh, the FAA came out with uh, what was apparently a pretty broken definition of what, icing conditions? Uh, the definition of what constituted icing conditions, and yeah. uh, um, and then now recently they've officially released a, a, a new definition that that apparently is is better. What's tell me what's going on here? Um, it, it, it's uh, uh, somebody used the right word for it. The definition that they've they've worked the FAA has worked itself into is more holistic. It, Actually, is going to be they say taking into account the conditions forecast and the conditions encountered and the pilot's action in any incident or accident where they're looking at whether the pilot violated regulations to avoid known icing. Mm-hmm. And uh, my little bit of experience with icing has taught me that it can very often happen where you really don't expect it to happen uh and it's just a matter of conditions on a case-by-case basis now if you fly into an area where there's pyreps stacked up at your wingtip that's saying people were picking up ice coming and going and you want to fly a long cross country through that without anti-icing and known icing equipment uh you know that's going to signal uh, uh or a real fundamental lack of respect or lack of understanding somewhere along the line. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, if you start to see it build up to the point where uh, we we were doing an approach into a new airport up above Kansas City, and we were in the clear, uh, en route. Matter of fact, we didn't even encounter a cloud cover until we were about halfway to this place, about 250 miles north of Wichita, north northwest or northeast, and in Kansas City center started to let us down for the approach and part of the letdown was to hold at I think it was about 4,000 MSL which put us about 500 feet into the cloud layer Mm -hmm. and the outside air temperature at that point in the cloud layer was about 28 degrees and we started to ice up right quickly Yeah, Mm -hmm. and it was about 3,000 feet down to clear air. So we asked for and got to climb out of there in a big-ass hurry. And up in the sunlight, the uh, ice went away really quick. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Who knows? What what happened here? And and uh, we all will have to wait for uh, people much more experienced and uh, much more informed than we are yeah. uh, before uh, a probable cause is is decided here. But I, I do have to kind of contrast uh, the way this 
um, the way a lot of information has been kind of dribbled out about this um, uh, accident, um, dribbled out, leaked, whatever you want to call it, from the NTSB. In, in previous years, uh, I don't think we would have seen um, this kind of, of information coming out of the T- NTSB this soon. I, it did strike uh, me that we were hearing about, uh, you know, recorders uh, this yeah. early. Yeah. Um, and um, it, it just strikes me as a little unseemly um, and a little unprofessional on the part of the NTSB. Um, in years past, and I think back about uh, uh, the Air Florida crash in 1982, and I think back about uh, um, some of the other major crashes that have occurred, uh, TW-800, for example, um, where the NTS, some of the NTSB's finest hours uh, in, in keeping you know, their, their nose to the grindstone and doing the research, doing the digging, and uh, putting literally putting the pieces together to come up with with um, the, the cause of the accident. I don't see them working as hard this time. I see them, you know, uh, doing their research and um, um, doing it in the media on a daily basis. Um, it's it's um, almost unheard of, and I don't know what their agenda is. I don't know what it is they're trying to prove here. Um, but I, let me say, I kind let of me wonder. Say something if, if, let, let me finish. And I'll let you. Sure. I kind of wonder if we wouldn't all be a little bit better off if uh, um, they went back to the old way. Mm-hmm. Well, I was, I was going to say years ago, what uh, what Lynn Lutzford and apparently Matt Wald at the New York Times have done today used to be my job, mm-hmm. and it used to be my job to be pestering people at NTSB for information about things like this. I remember going to the NTSB offices on a number of occasions just to witness the black boxes coming off the elevator and going into the lab where they would be disassembled and these archaic tracings on foil paper Mm -hmm. would be rolled out on a big light table and examined with a loop, you know, inch by inch, minute by minute, because the way that thing repeated, it would have weeks of tracks on it, but they'd be able to pick out the right one. Now it's all digital. They can download it uh, in no time. And this may not be getting dribbled out from NTSB people because on each of these investigations, and certainly this is one of them, there are a number of participants who are pretty much savvy on all the information. They call them parties to the investigation. Understood. The pilots' union will be a party to the investigation. Uh, Bombardier will have representatives on different teams as a party to the investigation. Pratt & Whitney Canada, who makes the uh, engines, We'll have representatives on various panels of this investigation. Uh, if there's a flight attendants union, there'll be flight attendants on there. There'll be people there from maintenance, from the maintenance shop. Uh, there are a lot of non-NTSB people uh, involved in participating in this and seeing a lot of the same information, depending on the area that they're in. If they're in human factors... Uh, you could have a pilot's union guy and a couple of people from the NTSB and somebody from Bombardier, uh, human factors uh, accident investigation since they designed the flight back and built it. Uh, 
And the amount of ancillary communications that you can dribble out of people who are parties to the investigation and not specifically NTSB people has been a source of aggravation for NTSB media contacts and board members and investigators for a lot of years. What, what level of like security and confidentiality is, is on these things? Um, you know, if, 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 you know, and I'm, let's just talk generically, not, not about this particular incident, but if the airline, the aircraft manufacturer um, wants to try and, you know, cover their ass by, by releasing some information, um, is that actionable by the uh, NTSB? Not exactly. It'd be, you know, first off, you'd have to get the reporter to admit that it came from, say, the company representative. I see. It may have come from the pilot representative. Yeah. It may have come right. from a pilot representative who's walking around with his head down going, you won't believe what happened. Yeah, yeah, okay. Uh, All right, interesting. Know, and, and, and very often the information is shared with uh, actually more, uh, what's the word I want here? Uh, more. No, just the opposite. They're, 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 okay. they're trying to put some yeah, minds at rest. Frankness. Frank. They're trying to put well, some minds at rest. Yeah, I understand, but I guess there, there's still more of this going on than there used to be. Yeah. Uh, um, and I don't understand. Uh, it seems to be anyway. Um, and I don't understand what the agendas are. Um, I can tell you what the agenda of the two reporters is. That's not to get to beat get by the story. other guy. Yeah, I know yeah. that. That, yeah. that part I get. Yeah. Yeah. Well, let's uh, yeah. let's let's move on here. But this is going to yeah. be an ongoing yeah. thing, and we can talk about it some more later on. Let's just um, let the NTSB do their job. Yeah. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Um, so this is just a, this is actually not a very big item, but I, I just thought it was kind of interesting and notable that um, you know with all those. Why talk about it at all? Because, because <laughs> I don't know. Because I want to give our friends at Cirrus a plug. I don't know. Maybe I. I, just, oh, I don't even know what I've become, Since we've been doing this podcast, uh, Cirrus wasn't even on my radar really before we started doing this podcast. And since well, we've been you doing this radar? podcast, uh, yeah, well, I'm, I lead a sheltered life. Um, I wondered where he got a job after Mash. I have. Uh, I have been uh, been more and more impressed with Cirrus for lots of different ways and lots of different reasons. And so um, with all of the uh, ma- aircraft manufacturer layoffs that are going on these days, and Cirrus is not immune to that, um, they announced the other day, or, or a story came out the other day, I don't know whether they announced it or if it just came out, but Cirrus has apparently decided um, that um, with the layoffs they're doing, they're not going to be cutting back. Uh, on their on their light jet development program, um, they're going to try and keep that one kind of going relatively full speed. And uh, I just thought that was interesting. I think it's a it's it's an interesting commentary on the the future of the VLJ. Although theirs isn't technically speaking a VLJ, but uh, on that light jet market, um, it's a commentary on Cirrus's business people. Um, it's just it's a commentary on their business plan, man. Yeah, because their business plan is approaching this jet from the direction completely opposite uh, the way that uh, Eclipse and Adam and a bunch of others approach it. As we can catch a bunch of move up pilots and some move down pilots if we give them a really cheap jet. Mm-hmm. We can convert a lot of twin drivers, piston twin drivers, because that's where the that's where the market really was. A yeah. lot of people thought so, Cirrus is targeting the SR twenty two customer. Yeah, their own customer. Right. right. Yeah. 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 It's a. Uh, 
and I, I flew the uh, Cirrus light jet the other day again. I uh, I was installing X Plane on my computer, getting ready for <laughs> oh. playing around with the IFR stuff. And no, while we're, the default while we're aircraft. Talking about when you when you first yeah. install X Plane, the default aircraft that first comes up is the uh, is the uh, Cirrus light jet. I'm sorry, Jeb. Go ahead. While we're talking about light jets and, and whatnot, um, earlier today, uh, Avweb is reporting uh, all Eclipse workers in Albuquerque were sent home and told not to come back until further notice. Oh, no kidding. No kidding. Well, we sort yeah. of known this was coming. Uh, um, yeah. Calls to Eclipse for confirmation or further details have not yet been returned, according to Avweb. Um Okay, it was bought, right? Something was bought. It was a winner. Let me finish reading the, the next sentence. The Please. assets of the company were sold last month in a bankruptcy court proceeding to Eclipse Jet Aviation International, a subsidiary of Eturk or Eturk or whatever it is, aviation, for $28 million, $28 million in cash plus $160 million in shares and 15% equity in the company for secured shareholders. When the company filed for Chapter 11 protection last November, it was estimated Eclipse owed more than $1 billion to a long list of creditors. Maybe they can get a bailout. Um, <laughs> last October, Forecast International Aerospace Market Think Tank said it expected the company would likely cease production early in 2009. In September, the company announced the Russian government had approved construction of an assembly plant there. AdWeb will post further details as they become available. Um, my recollection is there was approximately 260 uh, Eclipse airframes that were completed. Um, I don't think we're going to see 261. Mm-hmm. Well, it depends. We I'd like might, to be wrong. I'd like. To, uh, can somebody give me the Cyrillic for 261? That would be Russian. <laughs> yeah. Okay, because I really think that that's what's happening here. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, yeah. I know, mean, why would they know, buy this they're thing? They're planning on building the airplanes. I they're, mean, they're taking it overseas. Yeah. Well, yeah. and they got it yeah. for two cents on the dollar, kiddies. Yeah. yeah. Not twenty cents. Two cents. Right. Yeah. Two cents on the dollar because that uh, hundred and fifty million in whatever and fifteen percent share doesn't mean anything unless they show a profit right but you know that's all vapor equity you know it doesn't seem to me there are any assets there that were really genuinely valuable other than the airplane design i mean the ability to build this airplane design the type certificate a bunch of tooling all the technical instructions for the uh cad cam programs that run the uh, but that stuff is all valuable if they continue to be in the business of making eclipse jets right well, yes and no. Some of this advance and some of the patents that they got in friction stir welding control. Well, that's what I was trying to get to. Is that the case? They they could be valuable by themselves to a lot of other companies uh, that may or may not be wanting to build airplane aero structures out of aluminum. Interesting. Uh, because Eclipse has managed to do this in some compound th- three-dimensional shapes that were quite unlike the simple circular stuff that was being done uh, in England and for some of the, uh, uh, what do they call, expendable launch vehicles that uh, have mm-hmm. been used for, outer, for, for space launches. Because mm-hmm. mm-hmm. uh, a lot of that stuff's been built with 
friction stir welding. Friction stir welding wasn't new when they when they tapped into it. There was their application that was new. Yeah. So there's some stuff there that could have some residual value, uh, but you know. Everything's down right now. Yeah, so, no. have you looked yeah. at used airplane prices lately? Yeah, really. Oh yeah. Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. Anyways, well, let's see. Now they've also cut back on not the, not they different they altogether. Not like Eclipse or Cirrus or any of those days. Um, they being what FAA or or uh, whoever. This what's a C- CWSU? I sort of know, but what does it mean? What does it stand for? Center Weather Service Unit. Okay. In so, other words, it's a group of meteorologist based in an air route traffic control center that monitor um, and report on the weather in that center's airspace uh, so that controllers can uh, plan how how to route traffic and they can communicate that same information to pilots uh, to help them plan uh, their routings and and avoiding severe weather. Um, This, and I'm I'm trying to open it here. Here we go. Um, The uh, Asheville, of all places, Asheville, North Carolina Citizen Times, uh, through Gannett News Services, is reporting uh, there is a plan to cut the number of weather experts serving U.S. airports by nearly a third and house the remaining ones in two national centers. Um, in other words, this is uh, uh, closing and consolidating the Center Weather Service Units, CWSUs, at the what are they, 13, 14 air route traffic control centers around the country, consolidate that down to two facilities and cut the total number of bodies involved. Now, I always um, hate it when aviation stuff gets cut, but I have to admit this doesn't sound like such a bad decision. Set me straight. Well, okay. Um, you want to go first? Here's here's the money quote. <laughs> they buried, yeah. They buried the money quote here about eight graphs down. Um, and I'm going to butcher this gentleman's name. Uh, I'm not going to try his name. An instructor in aviation technology at Purdue University was quoted as saying, <clears throat> "At this time, I don't think the technology is mature enough. Sometimes people want to replace humans with machines, but sometimes humans are not replaceable." And, thank and, you. You know, to thank you. Yeah, thank you. Thank you very much. And I think I'm going to like you know save I'm that gonna, quote. I'm, I'm going to try. I'm going to take a, a flyer on this and say Chin Sung Lu. That's what I was teaches aviation for. technology at Purdue. Now I'm an IU guy, Indiana University, but I got a lot of respect for the aerospace sciences and meteorological sciences at Purdue because it's an engineering school. Uh, but we've seen this with. Uh, two consolidations of the flight service station network the big big one during reagan when we were promised equal or better i gotta i gotta open an email go ahead and it went from 460 odd stations down to 71 and a whole lot of a whole lot more stations per capita in alaska than in the lower 48 but at any rate we were promised equal or better well what we got was a a not so bad automated set of systems that was completely devoid of the micrometeorology knowledge and judgment that builds up when forecasters work defined areas for you know two or three years and longer and that's what's going to go away here, is the uh, the judgment knowledge to know that just because the satellite says and the data says this is what it's supposed to do, actually, if it comes up this kind of combination or this terrain, it's going to do something different than what they expect. 
Uh, Jiminy, that's how sailplane pilots get good airtime without burning gas. Uh, hang ladder pilots, it's how uh, uh, VFR pilots learn to get cross country without an instrument rating uh, and without getting caught, you know, VFR into IFR. And if they well, take this away, that's I, I, what's going to be lost. I can't take credit for this uh, little bit of research, but I'll give it to uh, Brian Smith, who's a participant in the DC Pilots um, um, email list uh, to which I subscribe. And he, we, there was a discussion um, on that list earlier this week about iPhone-based flight planners. Mm-hmm. And uh, putting aside that general topic, uh, Brian took it upon himself to uh, research back where uh, Lockheed Martin, who is the contractor now for Flight Service Station System, researched back um, where it, he thought a 20-second answer commitment. In other words, the part of the contract commitment um, um, that Lockhart undertook um, when they entered into this contract with the FAA was to answer the phone in, within 20 seconds. Mm-hmm. Okay, And uh, he, he looked around, poked around, and, and found a list of commitments on the AOPA's website. And I just sent you guys a link to the, to the, to the list of commitments. And it's talking about um, flight services twenty and flight service twenty one, um, which will consist of hubs. All three hubs went into effect in you know, went in testing mode in January two thousand seven. Uh, but it talks about the various performance measurements. Um, uh, some of the things that uh, you know, t- pilots' phone calls will be answered within twenty seconds. Acknowledge their radio calls within five seconds. Flight plans will be filed within three minutes. Pilots will be able to access flight service via web portal, receive an interactive briefing, giving the pilot the ability to file flight plans online and see the same charts and weather maps on their computers as the briefer sees. Email and PDA alerts. If there is a notum that comes out or there is a significant change in the weather after a pilot's live or computer-based briefing, the system will send the pilot an electronic alert. Um, local knowledge. Briefers will be trained to specific geographic areas, ensuring pilots will still have access to specialized knowledge of local conditions. When pilots first contact an FS-21 facility, they'll be prompted to indicate the area that the flight will occur so that they can be connected to a briefer who knows the area. Now, some of that is kind of sort of exists. Some of that um, is is out there, but not all of it by any stretch of the imagination. And and I cannot, I don't, I, I, you know, flight plans will be filed. I'm still waiting on a couple of flight plans to be filed from months ago. <laughs> yeah, and, okay. And and flight service hasn't answered one of my radio calls within five seconds in probably thirty years. Yeah, it sounds like a pretty um, good number. I admit. Yeah. Pretty ambitious stuff here, and and uh, um, you know some some people bought into this this spill of goods. Um, I, I'd be interested to hear back from from some of our listeners on whether they think these uh, these objectives have been met. Yeah. Okay. Well, I mean, I, we need to move along here, but so yeah, the, the, yeah. these these weather these meteorologists that are about to get cut, um, do they work for Lockmart or do they who do they work for now? Uh, they're they're FAA employees. Service. 
Well, they're the National National Weather Service. Yeah, they're government employees. Okay. Uh, they're they're based at the various uh, uh, centers around the country, and what uh, what they're being what's being talked about here. And apparently, I don't know. It's 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 FAA and NWS people. Um, what what the uh, what's going on here is they just want to re- again. It's it's a matter of uh, those pesky humans want to be paid. They want to have benefits and they want to have retirement. It's 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 amazing. I, I don't well, understand it's, it. It's also those pesky users. They you know yeah. it's not enough expect- that we charge them. We charge them dollars for every gallon. You know, we charge them taxes on every gallon of fuel they burn flying anything. Uh, but they expect even the guys that don't use any service expect service. That's right. Mm-hmm. And you know, it, it, it's funny though. Even more so, they expect. You know those users, those pilots flying around on those all those airplanes. They expect the government to get it right the first time. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Well. All right. So much for that. Yeah. So I had the. Uh, this is my. Yeah, we got this, this FSF thing yet right on the first try in three tries. We need a name Sorry. for this. Like just like just like we've got all off field landing of the week. We need Jack's yeah. weekly IFR training report or something like Jiffer. that. Jiffer. Yeah. Why don't uh, we call it? Why don't we call it Jack's week, weekly IFR training report? Okay. Hey, what an idea! You don't uh, like Jiffer? What an idea. Jiffer makes such a great acronym. Jiffer. Jiffer. Okay. Jiffer. J I F R. Jiffer. Um, we covered. Uh, we covered human factors. Uh, aircraft physics and aircraft instrumentation this week. Uh, what are the human human factors? Are kind of talking about inner ear and how how balance works and you know sort of what sort of things are going to give you vertigo and 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 all that. Wow, your ear lies to you. Yeah, exactly. You know, and uh, so that was kind of the eyeball. The eyeball. What about the eyeball? Uh, I did we talk about that? I guess we did. I mean, we certainly talked about the fact that horizons can lie to you; that you can not be seeing, think you're seeing a horizon, but you're not. Um, okay. You know, things like uh, night sky lying to you, light sources at night. Did you know that half moving. of what you see is not really there? Uh, oh yeah, because of blind spots. I think is that what you're getting at? Well, the space between <laughs> rods t- and cones, your brain fills in the gap. Yeah. Okay. Um, Jack, you should have taken the blue pill. That's right, yeah. <laughs> so that was human factors. Then we talked about aircraft physics, which was basically a review of things, you know, that the uh, it's, you know, the four forces of flight, lift, drag, thrust. Hang on. Lift, drag, thrust. I'm sorry. There's a fourth one in there someplace. <laughs> uh, I think I think it would be power? gravity. Power? Yeah. Lift, thrust, drag, and gravity. Right. Yeah. So, anyways, so we talked about that stuff, um, and uh, so just sort of to review, you know, why an airplane flies in the first place, and what sort of things can get you jammed up, and then the, then the you know, and then, it, and that's interesting stuff. But what I, the things I start to find particularly interesting is when we start to talk about uh, aircraft instruments and and you know how you interpret them and and you know scans and all that kind of stuff, which is kind of fun. And Did they talk about how aviation's one of the few areas where the old axum? What goes up must come down isn't always true. Uh, he didn't use that term. What, tell me what you mean by that. What goes yeah, up must come down. Oh, yes. It's not always true in aviation. Why is that? Sometimes the wheels don't come down. Ah, okay. No, we didn't talk about that kind of thing. <laughs> but, uh, um, two little interesting little tidbits that came out of this, um, and... Uh, 
One was something that I'd sort of heard in the past and sort of knew a little bit, but it kind of suddenly rang true to me. And this, it's this, and this has nothing to do with instrument flight. This is just we were talking about, you know, uh, uh, aircraft physics. This whole thing where you can increase the speed of your aircraft by sometimes adding weight to the aircraft. It's all about manipulating where the center of gravity right is. Place, yeah. You know, so yeah. so, so that you're, the right place. so that you, you want your airplane loaded so that you get minimal or min or, or no. Um, deflection of the uh, elevator. Um, in other words, no no or minimal drag off of the elevator, and thus you can. And so, by actually adding weight or by reshifting the weight that's in the aircraft, you can speed things up. That's kind of an interesting little tidbit that came out of this. See, I'm learning more about non-instrument flying things Clar- than I am. Clarification. Yeah. Um, you want to minimize the total weight of the airplane, yeah. but the weight that you must carry aloft. You want it placed uh, in an optimum location so that you do, in fact, minimize deflection of any tail surfaces and, and the drag that they d- create. Now, how, in fact, do you know what's the right loading? Um, is it is it that you want the center of gravity, the CG, to be at the center of lift? You want it to be um, close. Yeah. But, yeah as close um, as you, you can know, get there's, it. There's a sweet spot. Um, and um, it, it, that sweet spot depends on the airplane, which which airplane we're talking. About. I see, and, okay. and almost almost down to the specific serial number, because of the way they're they're built, and uh, the way they're loaded and equipped. Um, it's been a long time since I had to think about uh, um, 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 aerodynamics one hundred and one, but uh, yeah, you want the center of pressure. Uh, to be um, close to the center of gravity, right. so that the, the whatever, whether it's a canard or a conventional tail or a stabilator or whatever, so that whatever balancing surface there is doesn't have to deflect itself very much, if at all, right. to right. maintain level coordinated flight or a pitch uh, a neutral pitch. Um, there's also an airspeed component here too. Um, you you can establish a certain loading and a certain airspeed uh, of the airplane uh, to minimize that deflection, where um, a different loading or a, a higher airspeed would cause uh, a greater deflection and therefore greater drag. Mm-hmm. So it, it's it's not as simple as it sounds. Typically, uh, an airplane um, um, with the same total weight loaded slightly more aft than, say, the forward. Well, certainly, uh, an airplane with the same weight uh, with its CG at the forward limit is going to be slower than an airplane of the same weight flown at its aft CG limit, assuming conventional tail surfaces. Mm Mm-hmm. That makes any sense. I think so. I think it's, so. It's also reason why there's a big difference in the performance of different kind of different configuration tail feathers, uh-huh. like an airplane that's got a conventional elevator and then a trim tab. Mm-hmm. Uh, outside a certain window of loading and speed, you're always going to be producing the drag of having the trim tab cranked in one direction or another to deflect the elevator in one direction or the other. A stabilator always finds its neutral point for whatever angle of attack that you want. So no matter where you're flying, it's at the minimal drag possible for it. 
But I think the Mooney does it the best of all. And that's where the whole, the whole bloody tail, tail tilts up and down. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it, it works that way on a lot of jet airliners. Uh, there's not yeah. a trim tab back there. The whole of the horizontal service has a jack screw that screws the front edge of it up and down to find the optimal angle and no trim pressure for whatever speed that you want to be flying. And uh, it can make quite a difference. You can build muscle if you do it wrong. Yeah, there you go. There you go. Well, anyway, so that's uh, that's what I have to say about next week. We're supposed to be. Uh, they just kind of. We're going to talk about uh, attitude flying, basic aircraft control, and navigation systems. Is the I love attitude flying. Yeah, I'm the best. Get out of the foot. <laughs> okay. All right. So that's take next your week. Ad- take your attitude and stick it in your tail feathers. So that's that's this week's jiffer. Um, jiffer. Ah, I love it. It's catching on. I mentioned a moment ago that uh, since we've been doing this podcast, I've learned to love Cirrus. Um, Another thing I've learned over the two and a half years we've been doing this podcast is to be really cynical about the uh, next-gen transportation system plan. Oh, my work here is done. (laughs) Jeff, we were talking about what he hadn't picked up on on 121 prior. Well, here's what he has picked up on. I just, oh, you know, so David, I you put this on the list. This is from a couple of weeks ago. What's the news here, David? Well, they're trying to set a new set of priorities. Yep. And uh, actually set some benchmarks and some timetables for hitting the benchmarks. And it, it sounds like, it sounds like, and I base this on the fact that they're creating a, 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 an RTCA, Radio Technical Commission for Aeronautics Task Force, to, to in the do. next few, in, during the summer months, come up with standards for the avionics that's going to be needed to do this so that everybody has a standard set of TSOs to play to. And uh, try to get this thing in motion with some actual goals, how they're going to handle different procedures and how they're going to be able to employ, you know, new airspace uh, saturation levels because what you're going to be able to do and not do with ADS-B in versus ADS-B in and out, in and out, you're going to get to do a lot more just like on a blind date. I can't believe I said that. Oh, man. <laughs> so listen, so you know, so here this is this is going to be an example. This is going to be an example of my naivete when it comes to the federal government in the United States of America, but it just seems to me that the whole next gen thing is not so much about building and implementing the system as it is about planning the system. I mean, it's just like, come on, why don't well, we that's, do Well, that's what we're talking that's, about here. That's that's part of it, but the other part of it is something to which I alluded earlier. Yeah. It has to do with those pesky humans. Yeah. Those pesky controllers, those pesky weather serv- weather observers, and, and, and meteorologists, who and pesky pilots for that matter too, who want to be paid, they want benefits, and they want retirement, and we can't have that. Okay. We can't have that if we're gonna if we're gonna funnel all of our taxpayers' money off to the contractors. Well, it's, it's just it's, sorry. It's, it's hard for me to think of any program that's been totally foobar, totally forever. Eventually, things do happen and things do get done. And, you know, as, as time is taught, generally over, per, over budget and generally way over schedule. But mm-hmm. a couple of things have me 
a little more encouraged than I was a year ago, you know, over the same thing. Uh, one of them is that the new DOCT secretary actually knows what this is. He knows why it's important. He talked about it in his confirmation hearings as one of the goals of his time as Secretary of Transportation is to see this thing, you know, get traction and move forward both in the planning and operational side as well as the hardware and infrastructure side, which gives me some encouragement. Uh, There's a new name floating around for FAA administrator that gives me even more encouragement. So, uh, uh, you know, it's, it's actually possible here that we will get four years farther than we did in the last eight years, which I don't think we got a year farther in the last eight years. That's faint praise. All right. Um, We'll see. We'll see. Uh, Moving on. David just confirmed that FAA reauthorization too. I mean, wow, the ATA actually was singing from the same page of the handbook as the NBAA today. That was kind of impressive, wasn't it? You know, that, uh, that, who, who who led the singing of Kumbaya? Do we know? I think that the pitch pipe was probably in the hands of ATA because uh, they were losing – they lost the argument in the last Congress for two years. And the most that happened in their favor was blocking reauthorization from happening altogether and a bunch of continuing resolutions that maintain the status quo. Uh, now the White House has changed hands. Old allies are gone. They're weaker in Congress. I think they recognize that the pitches and the swings that they got last year and the year before last, they're not even going to get up to bat this year. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. And, and, and it's I think best to sign on, be cooperative, be a good yeah. little doobie and player, and then they'll listen to you when something other, uh, you know, when some new rubber hits the road. I think the SecDot was a supporter of uh, the House bill and, and no user uh-huh. fees and things like that, also. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. David, what's no plane, no gain? No plane, no gain. Uh, this really chafes me. Uh, no plane, no gain. No plane, no gain was this great, was this great industry pitch that NBAA, uh, largely with some support from Gamma and others, developed back in the early '90s when Jack Alcott was head of NBAA. And what no plane, no gain was was a series of uh, feature stories, photo stories that basically told the user-level uh, user level story of business aviation. Mm-hmm. Small companies, medium companies, big companies, one-person companies, how they use the airplanes, why it made their companies more successful, why it made their companies more profitable, uh, why it made their companies able to pay more taxes, uh, and so they've they've now revived this campaign, correct? It went away, kind of. Unfortunately, yeah. it went away, and it went away at a time when it's easy to say, "Why do we need to keep doing this?" We're, you know, we're growing members by leaps and bounds. The airplane companies are selling jets. 
faster than they can push them out the door. They got a backlog that's going to last until their grandkids are ready for college. Uh, why keep this going? And then Detroit flew three different Gulf streams to Washington with hat in hand asking for a bailout and banks that took troubled asset relief program monies uh, were apologetic about having ordered a new business jet four years ago and suddenly business aviation and flying for business across the board is 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 looked down on like it's you know some useless uh, uh, golden statue that anybody that flies a business airplane is like wow you know they really are only doing that so they can go to the kentucky derby and the super bowl jack so yeah. you know no plane no gain has come back to tell the story about the 95 percent of business use that is not going to the kentucky derby or the super bowl or take sending somebody home for the weekend the 85 percent that is hard-working technicians and middle managers and support staff that get flown to between different company facilities in ways that the airlines could never do cost effectively. No plane, no gains back. He he rehearsed this, didn't he? Yeah, I know. He was really going for it, huh? That was great. Yeah, hey, man, I'm, impressed. Is, yeah, I'm impressed. We, we have we have undersold our story. We have undersold GA. Every time we start to feel in our safe zone, things are going good. We don't need to worry about things anymore. Sure. We roll back to the status quo. The uh, you know things are so good we don't have to worry anymore. And every time we do that, when things get bad somewhere, then airports get assaulted, or they want to shut out GA users because it's the safe thing to do, or we don't need to sell business aviation. It's going Polit- so politically well. Politically, they, they want to bar us from using airplanes for business. It's insane. We should never stop. Never ever stop. Yeah. Sure. Yeah, we definitely put our what's the saying? Put our hide our light under a barrel or something like that. But uh, mm-hmm. well, that's good. That's good. Well, uh, I'm going to take a look at that stuff. I, I just saw the the announcement the other day, but I'll, I'm going to go look at their information. That's pretty. Well, cool. It's like GA Serving America that AOPA started under the Phil Boyer tenure, and 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 I see a lot of benefits for the Let's Go Flying thing that AOPA has started under Craig Fuller's tenure. But given the mood and attitude about business aviation these days, I'd like to see a lot more emphasis put on the story that GAServingAmerica.com was telling when it was the hot new thing at AOPA, yeah. you know, about people who carry transplant organs and cancer patients and put out forest fires and save people from car crash scenes and pluck people off of roofs and haul you know, donated blood to sites that are needed and uh, 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 flyer traffic patrols and pipeline patrols and power line patrols to make sure that our infrastructure doesn't go down, uh, chase bad guys and catch crooks and uh, uh, fly checks at night so that our money shows up in our accounts like it's supposed to. Uh, it's just an endless list of things that GA does for this country, and it just lights me up that we've got to go you know oh by the way you know we're not just flying high muckety mucks to the super bowl and 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 las vegas and stuff yeah here 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 yeah he did rehearse this but he did i like that was a good one that was a good one i like very good very good but now he's gonna now he's gonna tout something that i'm liable to kind of poo poo at but i'm gonna let him go ahead anyways david tell tell us about owen nicely Oh, 
<laughs> All right. Well, I, I I thought long and hard about this, but anytime you got an admittedly pretty tall twelve year old who's already got fifty hours of dual instruction, who's determined that he's going to make a, a, a livelihood out of flying, I think that deserves a little sit up and say, "You go, kid." You go for it, man. You go like a bat out of hell. Uh, I remember another young man that walked into the show daily office at Oshkosh one year, a long time ago, wanted to know where he could go to get lessons because he'd been told he could solo in the United States until he was 16. So he went to Canada. Hmm. You know, now he's making his living promoting aviation. So uh, this young man, Owen Nicely, to get to it, he's taken lessons at Page Field in Fort Myers, Florida. He's 12 years old. He's 12 years old, and he's already got about 50 hours. And from the, the read I got in this article from the local newspaper, if it was legal for his CFI to solo him, he'd have soloed a long time ago. Yeah, this boy's a serious study. Yeah. Hey, good luck to Owen nicely in. Uh, yeah, absolutely, uh, Owen. You go, you go, boy. Is he? Is this uh, Fort Myers, Florida? Yeah. 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 Okay. Well, maybe we can. Uh, not far. From here. Yeah. Not far. Much closer to Amy. I wonder if Amy knows him. We'll have to talk to Amy. I'll ask. Yeah. I will ask. Okay. Hey, uh, shout outs. What do we got here? Is this yours, David? Uh, oh well, it could have been either one of us. I'm sure Jeb would have put it on if if he'd beaten me, but. Uh, uh, former Wichita boy, uh, longtime executive director of the AOPA Air Safety Foundation. Uh, oh, yeah. He got a new title uh, in the past week. He's now Bruce Landsberg is now the president of the AOPA Air Safety Foundation. And you might remember us mentioning Bruce and his appearance on National Public Radio on the uh, 50th anniversary of the Buddy Holly. Richie Valens' big bopper accident, uh, what, an episode or two back. Uh, but Bruce has been uh, at the Air Safety Foundation for almost 17 years, and he's one of the sharper guys that I know. And uh, congratulations to Bruce. Mm-hmm. Great. Great. Was it Bruce yeah. who wrote the article, yeah. the the uh, the uh, article from AOPA magazine that I referred to the other day about the big bopper crash? The Buddy Hall. Yes. Crash? Yeah. Okay. Yes, it was. Yeah. Yes, okay. it was. It's good yeah. stuff. Yeah, Bruce is good people, and he's and he's very very good um, at at his job. Um, uh, he, he's really done a lot of good stuff with ASF, and uh, uh, deserves not only all the um, uh, accolades he can get, but all the recognition for that job. And uh, uh, you know, he's someone we ought to have on the on the podcast sometime yeah. in the near future. Too. As a matter of fact, I just picked up. I have sitting on my desk here. I got a a, a card in the mail from uh, from some combination of AOPA and uh, the Aero Club of New England that uh, Bruce Landsberg will be giving a talk. Down at uh, oh, down in Bedford, Mass, uh, on March 10th, and I kind of kept it and put it on my desk because I was thinking about going. And uh, so, uh, mm-hmm. yet another uh, good reason to go check that out. So, uh, anyways, uh, other shout-outs. Well, I just want to say, uh, you know, congratulations to the general aviation manufacturing industry. They had a record billing, uh, had record billing numbers for 2008. Uh, total number of airplanes was down primarily because of a big drop in piston sales, 20%, 
big surprise. Business jet deliveries hit an all-time record, which we kind of knew was coming. So that's not a big surprise either. The net effect was billings were up. Units were down for the first time in five years. Uh, Good news is that the uh, economic recovery bill just passed has some of the same sweeteners for buying a new airplane or even a used airplane that the old one did. So if you can use an airplane for business, interest rates are good. Tax breaks are good. 2009 wouldn't be a bad year to add an airplane to your operation. Yeah, so. the, only, the only fly in that element is, you know, if you were to hang on for a little while longer uh, to delay a purchase or something, probably going to get even better. Yeah, um, not trying to not not suggesting that it, that you wait, but uh, if you well, have, you got the whole uh, you got the whole of the year at the moment. So it's yeah, only what, what, what I'm getting, yeah, but uh, if you have uh, a, a real or even potential use for an airplane as an owner or as an operator or a leaser or a lessor, whatever, um, now's a great time. Uh, it's it's yeah, it might get a little bit cheaper, but gas isn't going to get much cheaper. And um, operating expenses, insurance, things like that, uh, maybe even financing is not going to get much cheaper. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, no time like the present. And if you go ahead and buy now and, hey, you know, prices, you know, decline a little bit more, that's okay. Because you still will have use of the airplane during that period of time, uh, whether, again, furthering your business or, or using it strictly for personal transportation or, or some other endeavor. So... Um, there's a lot of great deals out there. I was talking around the office this afternoon. You can get a, a you know a major size piston twin for you know seventy five grand these days. Really? Oh yeah, you get a Cessna three ten or a Baron or something like that for about seventy five grand. It might not be the nicest airplane you've ever flown, but it you know uh, it's 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 the real deal. That's great. Um, you know. Maintaining it and putting gas in is a whole other issue. But, um, you know, there's a lot of Skyhawks out there. There's a lot of uh, of uh, tail draggers uh, uh, out there, legacy LSAs out there, et cetera, that uh, um, are going for bargain prices these days. I uh, stumbled across a couple of uh, big surprise Comanches. Last I'm week. shocked that you're looking at Comanches. <laughs> I came across a couple of Comanches last week uh, uh, that were inordinately well-equipped and well-set up, uh, low time, decent engine time left for under 70, mm-hmm. and a couple that were fairly well-equipped and had some real high-end potential. For just a few bucks more, that came in under forty, mm-hmm. hmm. and uh, I happen to the, be working with the, with, on, with uh, the extension of the extension year. Okay, it's going to make it much easier to uh, try to make the right decision this year. I hope. Very cool. Very cool. I uh, happen to be working on um, um, April's issue of Aviation Consumer. Uh, and uh, April's issue, uh, as as we do every every month, we have a uh, what we call a used aircraft guide uh, department uh, in the back of the magazine. And April's uh, issue is is on the um, Piper Comanche. And, really, uh, I'm in the in the throes of putting all that together. Um, and um, uh, if anybody's out there looking for a high performance single, piston single, 
uh, and they don't want to spend a lot of money, but they want some comfort, they want some economy, and they want some performance. Yes, Comanche is a pretty good deal right now. Cool. I've long considered it one of the unsung values in the market. It really is. Yeah. It really is. Hey, guys, it's definitely time to stick a fork in this one. Uh, oh, second. already dead? Do already. I have to go to bed? Already. Hey, that's Dave Higgin. Uh, Dave is an aviation photographer, also an aviation journalist, and he's the U.S. editor for London's World Aircraft Sales Magazine. Dave, where can people find you on the net? Well, uh, I'll ha- actually hope to have a specific website to give to this by this time next week. In the meantime, uh, avbuyer.com, aea.net, or just Google my name. There you go. It, get rid of the physicist and the golf writer, and the rest is me. That's right. Yeah. I'm, I'm still coming. I still can't get my arms around the concept of there being an actual physicist named Dave Higdon. I know, you, but <laughs> there's something just doesn't. It's like uh, military intelligence. I don't know. It's just something out there. It just doesn't jibe with. And Jeff, I know it's a shocking, amazing thing, isn't it? And Jeb Burnside, uh, you are an aviation journalist currently serving as the editor in chief of Aviation Safety Magazine. Where can people find you on the internets? Well, the, the internets uh, on Internet A, <laughs> they can find me uh, at uh, uh, jeburnside.com is my personal website, which is still Tango Uniform right now. Uh, I'm not even going to hazard a guess as to when it'll be um, um, uh, Tango Delta. Um, and um, my day job, of course, AviationSafetyMagazine.com. Uh, there you can find all kinds of good stuff about uh, about the magazine and about how to fly uh, personal airplanes. And then, of course, every now and then uh, I pop up on AvWeb.com, although I haven't had anything lately there. And I'm Jack Hodgson. I'm a private pilot, a freelance writer, and a new media producer. You can uh, find out a little bit more about me at JackHodgson.com or AroundTheField.net. And uh, we want to give a big thanks to uh, Jeff Scoffrey-Jet Ward for creating our show notes. Also to the many of our listeners, and particularly to Mike Morgan and Royce Earl for the terrific show opening disclaimer uh, clips that they've been putting together. And don't forget it's to, amazing. It's incredible. It is. It is. I finally we finally ran the uh, the uh, chipmunk one uh, a, a long time ago. One of the very first <laughs> ones that ever came in was a parody on uh, on uh, on Alvin and the Chipmunks. Okay. Yeah. And and at the time that was so radical that I felt like it was just too. <laughs> <laughs> it was just too too you know f- you know fantastic to make it our show our disclaimer clip um and so i kind of put it in the can and we kind of put it on the in the forums and stuff but we didn't use it on the show um and 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 since then we've kind of our our level our threshold of 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 you know silliness has kind of risen over over time and uh and so when i i said oh, i gotta use the chipmunk one and listening to it for the first time in a few months i'm listening to it going well this is not nearly as wacky as some of the other ones we've done so uh so we use the chipmunk ones but they're all great and we've had a lot of listeners that have put these things we do wacky things jeb did you know that yeah wacky things i'm shocked shocked to Uh, find out there's gambling in this establishment (laughs) don't don't forget forget, kids it's almost the end of february april sun and fun comes along not too early to make plans anyways don't also also don't forget that you can visit with all of us at the uncontrolled airspace website you can read the blog you can view the forums you can check out the wiki the airport restaurants list the aviation movies list and more and that's all at uncontrolledairspace.com david what were you going to say 
I was going to say, if you want to live longer, go flying, because time spent flying is not subtracted from your lifespan. Live long. That's right. That's enough talking for tonight. Let's go flying. Mm, TTFN. TTFN.